Let's begin this morning in prayer. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. Lord, would we hear your word this morning? May we take heed of the encouragements and the warnings given to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're one to pay attention to the news, you'll know that for several months, the Russian military has been gathering troops and supplies at the Ukrainian border. So far, at least as of this morning, no shots have been fired and nothing besides aroused concerns have occurred. Yet if something does occur, people will look back and point to the buildup of the troops during this time. Well, this morning we come to a build-up, a build-up we've been waiting for since 1 Kings 19. You may remember 1 Kings 19 is when Elisha grew depressed and despondent because God, though he brought a massive miracle on Mount Carmel, he did not bring Jezebel and Ahab to punishment. In his despair, Elisha fled to the wilderness seeking Elijah, sorry, seeking to abandon serving God and even asking God to end his life. Yet God cared for his prophet Elijah, giving him food and water and rest and most of all spiritual nourishment. Then God declared to Elijah that he was going to work, but not only through Elijah nor in Elijah's time frame. Then 1 Kings 19:15 through 17 says, And the Lord said to Elijah, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall, be anoint, shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahulah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Well, interestingly, we then in 1 Kings 19 read of Elisha. But we never heard anything else of Haziel and Jehu until our passage today. We've gone through 10 chapters and many events. And it may have appeared that God's judgment was not going to occur. Yet as we will see, God patiently waits, because while he will bring judgment, he longs for people to repent so that he can show mercy, because mercy will triumph over judgment. Well, Israel and Judah's kings will not repent, though, and thus this morning we see the gathering storm of judgment upon them. If you have a bulletin, you can see the outline of the sermon First, in the first six verses of chapter 8, we see God's provision for the faithful. Next, in verses 7 through 15, we see God's sure but sorrowful judgment. Then in verses 16 through the end of chapter 8, verse 29, we see God's long-suffering patience. And then as we begin in chapter 9, we see God's preparation for vengeance. But it all begins in chapter 8, verse 1. And you may remember right before this was the dramatic miracle in Israel. They'd been under siege and they couldn't even buy food. They were eating their own children. And then in one night, God made it so they could buy handfuls of barley, handfuls of grain for nothing. Now the author goes from that national deliverance to reminding us of this woman from Shunem. 
You may remember her story, 2 Kings 4. She was faithful to the Lord and served Elisha, even built him a room on her house. And when Elisha said, what can we do? His servant realized she has no children. And so Elisha promised that God would give her a son. Then years later, her son had a bad headache or something like that. And when he went home, he died. And Elisha was called, the woman of Shunem went after him. And when she brought him back, Elisha brought the young man back to life. Well, now in this story, Elisha warns her, a famine is coming for seven years. Go and flee. And she listens. She goes to Philistia and is there seven years. And when she comes back, her land and her house are taken. Well, why? Well, perhaps greedy relatives had taken it over while she was gone. Perhaps squatters are unwilling to budge. Perhaps even the throne seized it. Jezebel was willing to murder Naboth to get his vineyard. But whatever the reason, we're not told why. She has to go to the king and appeal. Will you bring my, give my land and my house back to me? But then the story pauses because we need to know something else. We need to know that as she was examining her land that was taken over, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, is recounting to King Joram of Israel all that Elisha did. Now you might be wondering, as I am, why is Gehazi allowed to be in there? Last we knew, he was a leper who was going to be a leper for life. Well, we don't really know for sure, but for some reason, he is allowed in there. And at the exact time, he is recounting to King Joram of how Elisha brought this child back to life. Who appears in the doorway? The exact woman. God's timing is impeccable. He's never off by a minute, a second, or even a nanosecond. And so the king says, hey, will you, I did, tell me your side of the story. I want to hear what happened. And then once she recounts, he does an amazing thing. He sends an official back with her and says, you need to restore not just her house, not just her land, but anything that was grown and sold while she was gone off her land. You need to make sure she gets all of that back as well. God is providing for this widow. Well, one of the challenges of biblical interpretation is answering why this story and why here. It's an amazing story, but why is it included in this point? I mean, maybe it's chronological. That could very well be the case, but there's probably many stories in the seven years that aren't recounted. Why are we told this one? And I believe it's shown because God is reminding us that he showed King Joram that if you will be faithful to me, I'll take care of you. I, King Joram, I even take care of widows who are nobodies in the land of Israel, but I will provide for them if you're faithful to me. And now Joram is being reminded this over and over He's being reminded that Elisha had served, had been served by her, so she gave a son. When the son was gone, she trusted God, and God brought the child back. And even in this famine, God cared for her. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 40-42, Whoever receives me, sorry, receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous 
person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will no, by no means lose his reward. And Joram is seeing how this works out in the Old Testament. This woman is faithful to God's prophet, and God is faithful to her. Now, we don't live under the Mosaic Covenant as a nation, so obviously some of these things apply differently. But it is true that God will reward you for service to Him. And Joram himself, he's not just hearing stories. He just lived through seeing the siege lifted in one day. And it's driving the question, Joram, you've seen me work. Will you trust me, God asked. Will you trust me alone? Or will you continue to be like your father Ahab and turn to Baal to trust you? As we read earlier from 1 Kings 19, God promised judgment on the nation of Israel, specifically King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And yet in 1 Kings 21, when Ahab tore his clothes, when he put on sackcloth and went around dejectedly, God forgave him. God withheld his punishment for a time. He didn't withhold it forever, but he said this punishment could be delayed if you too will turn from your sins and turn to the Lord who will abundantly pardon. Well, will Joram repent and turn to the Lord? Well, we see the answer next by what occurs in Syria. This is chapter 8, verses 7 through 15. Because there... We move from the widow's house and the king of Israel's palace to Syria. And here in Syria, we read that the king, Ben-Hadad, is very sick. Now, Syria is an important foe that we need to recognize. Ahab had defeated them back in 1 Kings 20 because of God's intervention. And then the Syrians said, well, they only won because their God is the God of the hills. And not of the plains. So we need to go fight them in the plains and we'll win. And so God again caused them, the Israelites, to win. So that they would know that God rules everywhere. Well, God twice clearly brought Israel's victory. And so two chapters later, when Ahab goes to fight Syria at Ramoth-Gilead, what does he do? He turns to the prophets of Baal. And because he would not turn to the Lord, God caused Ahab to die in that battle at ramoth Gilead. Well, we didn't hear about Syria for several chapters, but then 2 Kings 5, we hear of the Syrian general Naaman who came and he sought out the prophet of Israel so that he might be healed. And we heard at that time that Syria was taking raids, even capturing prisoners. And then we just recently looked at Syria coming, trying to capture Elisha, but God allowed the Syrian army to be blinded and led to King Joram. And King Joram, though he wanted to slaughter them, by God's command through Elisha, gave them a feast and sent them home. And then lastly with Syria was the siege at which God just delivered them from. And all that history is going to play into what we see here over the next few verses. Because now we're back in Syria and Elisha has traveled there for some reason. We're not told exactly why, but since he's there, Ben-Hadad seeks him out. And this is a sad irony. Twice, the Syrian kings have come to the prophets of God asking, will we be healed? 
In contrast, the kings of Israel keep going time and again to the prophets of Baal. Even the beginning of 2 Kings is the story of King Joram's brother, Ahaziah, the first king after Ahab, who, when he was sick, sought out the prophets of Baal. And since he did, God allowed Ahaziah, the king of Israel, to die in his bed. But now here we are in Syria in 2 Kings chapter 8, and Ben-Hadad sends this man, Haziel, to go talk to Elisha. And that rings a bell. Haziel, we heard of a Haziel from Syria in 1 Kings 19. Is this the one? Well, we'll find out. Because he comes with 40 camel loads. I mean, imagine 40 camels with all these goods. And he comes in Elisha. Will God allow my master, Ben-Hadad, to recover? And we get this mysterious answer. He will recover, but he will die. Wait, is he going to recover or is he going to die? Well, it's cluing us into what's going to happen. And then there's this cryptic part of the story. He stares at him until he's ashamed. What does that all mean? I don't really know. But we see what happens. Basically, Elisha begins to weep. And Haziel, seemingly some kind of commander or general, probably a little embarrassed, is like, well, why are you weeping? What's going on? And Elisha tells him, I see that you will come and you will utterly destroy Israel. You'll kill her soldiers. You will rip open pregnant women. And to Haziel, this seems crazy talk. I'm a nobody. And yet Elisha lets him know that he will become king over Syria. So Haziel goes back with this message. And he tells the king you'll recover. But then the next day, he himself, Haziel, smothers the king and claims the throne. But I want to focus on this one part. Why does Elisha weep? And I believe it's tied to the fact that Elisha, as a prophet of God, is to be a visible representation of God. And when we come to study God's character, we have to realize it is very complex. God has revealed himself in a way that we can truly know him. And yet no one can ever say, I fully or exhaustively know God. In this case, we're dealing with this challenging concept. Because in 1 Kings 19, God said this would happen. God promised judgment upon them. So on one hand, God wants this to happen. And yet on the other hand, when he sees the judgment that is going to occur, he weeps through his prophet Elisha. And at this point... People either say, well, the Bible is just contradictory. That must have been some prophetic school that said this, and then some other prophetic school that said that. Or we can realize God is complex. And thinking about this this week, I was greatly helped by an article by John Piper. And let me share an analogy that he gives that I find helpful, and then some verses supporting it. Can we have the same event and have mixed emotions towards it? Well, imagine if your child or a loved one had cancer and needed chemotherapy. Let's look at two camera lenses, so to speak. The narrow lens of your emotions would be complete sadness. You would be utterly upset that your child will be sick and weak, unable to play. They'll lose their hair. 
years or at least a year of their life will be completely spent just trying to recover. On the narrow lens, chemotherapy and cancer is utterly sad. But then if you zoom out in the wide-angle lens, you might actually hear the parents say, I'm so happy they get chemotherapy. I'm so happy that we live in a time when they discovered this and we could give them these drugs so that they could live. Well, so is the parents sad? Or are they happy about chemotherapy? Well, it depends. Are you zooming in in the initial immediate or are you zooming out to the big picture, the wide-angle lens? And in an infinitely more complex way, that's true of God. Because what does God delight in? Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Or what does God dislike? Ezekiel 18.32 For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, what did he do? He wept because he knew the punishment that they were going to receive for not trusting him. And the point is, God is never giddy to punish anyone. God does not delight in judgment. God delights to show love, pardon sins, and forgive us. And while that is true, let me add, that is the narrow-angle lens. Because there's a wide-angle lens, because consider Psalm 115.3 that declares, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. God is the only being who only does and gets to do everything He once, you may want to do something this afternoon and something arises and you can't do it. We can't do everything we want. God is the only one. And here, God is the one who said, I will punish Israel. You know, this is the wide angle lens of God wanting and delighting in judgment. We hear this explicitly in Deuteronomy twenty-eight sixty-three, And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. It was times like this that we have to let scriptural logic and not human logic guide us. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The logic of scripture is never contradictory to true logic. Yet there are some truths that we would never hold to by logic alone. But we have to let Scripture guide us. For example, the Trinity is utterly logical. But you must come to understand it through Scripture. That Jesus came as fully God and fully man finds no contradiction in reason. But our source of knowing that is the Bible. I point this out because sometimes when we come to these difficult topics where these, these two tensions, people just claim one verse. They just claim one side and they just say that verse over and over as though that one verse eradicates the other verses that are there. And yet both verses are there. God is a God who does not delight in the punishment of anyone. God is the God who delights to punish. Well, we don't need to choose one verse or the other. We need to see that God has a narrow angle and a wide angle. 
We can see that even in what happened to Jesus. In the narrow angle lens, God the Father never for all eternity would want to do anything to punish his son. And yet in the wide angle lens, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Both are true. We don't need to pick one or the other. Thus, to know God as he truly is, we must hold all the truths that Scripture gives us and not just to retreat to one aspect of God's character so that we can get our minds around it. So to tie this up here, as James 2.13 says, God desires for mercy to triumph over judgment. As Ezekiel 18 says, God has no pleasure in the death, meaning judgment, of anyone. That is the narrow view, which is 100% true. God is not, with Christmas morning energy, excited to punish anyone. And that is why Ezekiel says, so turn and live. At the same time, God is 100% holy, and He loves and delights in justice being done. Thus, in the wide-angle view, God is the perfect parent who will bring punishment, though He doesn't delight in it. Not with the same joy as repentance and forgiveness, but He will bring it. And we see that played out even in our story here, because the next section we see God's long-suffering patience. This is the 16th verse to the end of the chapter, because the story is really flying all over the Palestinian world. We started in this widow's house. We then went to the capital of Syria. And now we go not back to Israel, we actually go to the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. And there, though we haven't heard about them much in many chapters, we hear of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and we learn that he passes on his throne while he's still alive to his son, Jehoram. Now, Jehoram is a little bit of a confusing situation because if you read verse 21, 23, and 24, you'll see that he is called Joram. And you might go, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought the king of Israel was Joram. Yes, he's Joram as well. It's a little bit like Anthony and Tony. They're the same person. Just some people call him Anthony. Some call him Tony. Jehoram is sometimes called Jehoram. Sometimes he's called Joram. But the way the author uses the names Jehoram and Joram, I think are very purposeful. Because you'll notice that he mainly and only uses the name Joram after he says that he serves Baal like Ahab did. It is though, yeah, he's Jehoram, but he's just like the king in the north. And what's his name? Joram. You can't even tell a difference. They may be reigning in the north. They may be reigning in the south. They may call it grits. They may call it polenta. They may say potato. They may say potato. But get past the surface. They're both kings who want to serve Baal and not serve the Lord. And thus, we can't even tell them apart. And yet, you may be wondering, how did this happen? Yes, we know the northern tribes, Israel, they forsook the Lord immediately. Jeroboam immediately set up false worship. But the tribe, the nation of Judah, they were faithful. What is it that has caused them to turn now? Well, it's because Judah made a marriage alliance with Israel. You can see that in verse 18. Before this, Jehoshaphat, that's Jehoram's father, he made a marriage alliance with Ahab and said, Hey, 
Why don't you allow my daughter, your daughter Ahab, to marry my son Jehoram? And while that did sow some peace and prosperity in the short term, in the long term, it sowed deviance from God and destruction. We see that even in our passage here, because Jehoram doesn't have a long reign, he only reigns for eight years. And God begins to judge them, because we see this nation Edom breaks free from their reign and is now a rebel, no longer under Judah control. Now, this really should have been a clear warning because in Deuteronomy 28, verse 25, God warns Israel that when their enemies defeat them, it is a sign of his judgment upon them. Now, the battle is a little confusing in verse 21 and 22, but what seems like happens is the former ruler, Judah, is so outmatched that they get surrounded and they have to do a nighttime escape just so the king can stay alive and get back to his palace. Whatever the case, not only does Edom rebel, so does Libna. Now Libna is a shocking rebellion. You may not know this. I didn't know this before I read it in a commentary. Libna is a city in Judah. So Judah is having their own inhabitants rebel against them. And not only that, Joshua 21.13 tells us this was a tribe allotted to the Levites. The alarm bells should be going off for Jehoram. The people who are supposed to be most faithful to God are going, we're done. We we don't want any more part of this kingdom. You stop serving God, we're out of here. And Jehoram is being given warning signs. You need to repent. Things are not going the way they should because you're not being faithful to God. And yet it doesn't seem like he gets the wake-up call because his reign ends and then we hear of his son, the next king, Ahaziah. And here, the family names, the family connections are getting extremely interwoven. Because you may remember... King Joram from Israel. So we got King Joram of Israel in the north. King Jehoram, also Joram in the south in Judah. King Joram of Israel had a brother and his name was Ahaziah. The same as the son of King Jehoram in southern Judah. Now, I don't know how you chose names for your children or how you will choose names for your children. But people put a lot of time and energy into it. They may choose a name for something unique because they want their child to stand out. They may choose a name because it's tied to a family member they love or they have someone in history that they want their child to be like. But often there are names that people go, no way, we, we are never naming our kid this. It might be someone they grew up with and they just couldn't stand him. It might be someone, a historical figure, like during the Revolutionary War, I doubt anyone was naming their children Benedict's middle name Arnold. If people know the Bible, they don't name their girls Delilah and their sons Judas. You would never name your kids after these people because they're notorious. And yet, what's the one thing Ahaziah, the former king of Israel, is known for? Oh yeah, he's the one who, when he was sick, didn't choose to ask God if he would be healed, didn't ask God to heal him. He went and he chose Baal to try and heal him. And what happened? He died. 
And yet, who do Jehoram and his wife choose to name their son after? Ahaziah. We are seeing time and again that these people have completely abandoned the Lord. Thus, it's not at all surprising when you read in verse 27 that Ahaziah walks in the way of Ahab and doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, he's just following along in the family tradition that's now interwoven between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And so, verse 28, they go to battle together, and you may have noticed, where do they go to battle? Ramoth, Gilead. I mean, the interweaving stories here are amazing, because where did Ahab die? Ramoth, Gilead. Time and again, God is bringing to their face, hey, don't you remember what happened here before? Y'all know the saying of a fool? A fool is a person who does the same thing over and over and expects different results. King Joram, King Ahaziah, look back at your history. King Joram, you just heard of how the Lord protected this widow. You just saw time and again when Israel turned to the Lord for victory in battle, you won. When you didn't, you were defeated. You've seen your brother die when he didn't seek the Lord. You've seen now Judah's beginning to lose battle. Even tribes that are loyal to the Lord are breaking off. What are y'all going to do? Well, they go to battle and they don't seek the Lord. And so thus, we see what we fully expect would happen. They lose in the battle. Joram gets hurt and he flees. And I think all of this, as I think I've already made clear, is highlighting God's long-suffering patience to them. God would have been perfectly just to immediately punish Ahab and Jezebel for their actions. He would have been perfectly just to immediately punish the southern kings of Jehoram and Ahaziah when they forsook the Lord and worshipped Baal. He would have been perfectly just to instantly punish the northern king Joram. Yet instead, God gives them years of life so that they can repent. He calls to their mind over and over the way he's worked, even through Elisha. As we said earlier, God longs to forgive. And yet though God patiently delays judgment, they won't turn. Sadly, people often misunderstand God's long-suffering patience. Romans 2.4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The fact that God does not judge us immediately is not because he's not going to judge. It's because he's trying to give you time to turn. Because he'd rather you know him as son than know him as one who is judged. And so now we see the final preparations of God's judgment in this last section, the beginning of chapter 9, our fourth section, God's preparation for vengeance. We now have another change of scene. We're taken back to Elisha. He tells another prophet, take this flask of oil and go to Ramoth Gilead. And where that is the place where Joram and Ahaziah just lost in battle. And when he gets there, he must find this man Jehu. Ding, ding, ding. We have now connected all the dots. We have Elisha from 1 Kings 19. We just have Haziel from 1 Kings 19. And now we have Jehu 
that God promised in 1 Kings 19 would come and bring punishment on Israel. Well, this prophet is to go and anoint Jehu saying, you are king over Israel. The prophet arises, Jehu's in war council, and he calls him out to a private conversation. And there, he anoints him with oil and declares, you are king over Israel. And notice something. In this, in verse 6, he says, thus, chapter 9, verse 6, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. It doesn't matter that Joram is worshiping Ahab. It doesn't matter that Ahaziah is worshiping Ahab. Who is truly the God of Israel? The Lord. You can call anyone else the Lord if you want, but he, the God of gods, is Lord, and he does reign, whether we recognize it or not. And then the prophet continues, that Jehu shall strike down the house of Ahab to avenge on Jezebel her killing God's servants and prophets. Notice the strong language in verse 7. There, it's talking about how you, verse 7, shall strike down the house of Ahab your master so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of the servants. Or verse 8, I, God is speaking, will cut off from Ahab every male. Or verse 9, I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam. Yes, Jehu will be the one who is the agent of God's punishment. But ultimately, this is God coming and bringing punishment. Jehu comes out of the meeting, probably quite confused. And the other commanders say, hey, what was that about? Oh, well, well, nothing. You know those crazy guys. Well, I imagine he probably still has a little oil trickling down his beard. And they're probably thinking, uh, these guys don't just show up and tell you how the weather is in other parts of the country. What was going on? And so he tells them, and they all immediately put their garments down, bow before Jehu, and declare him to be king. So the storm is gathered. The stage of 1 Kings 19 is completely set. Judgment is coming. But that will be next week. For now, let's end by noticing this amazing and encouraging passage. You may not think, well, encouraging. All we've set up is judgment. And yet, don't you think that they were surely some of Naboth? Remember Naboth, the one Jezebel killed? Don't you think they were some of his neighbors who, when they heard Naboth was killed for cursing God's name, said, No, no, that's that's not right. That was set up. They got those guys to lie. We know who they had say that, and those guys are worthless. Jezebel stole that property. This isn't right. What can we do? Well, what can we do against the king? And then they sat for years thinking, now Ahab died. He got away with it. And yet no one got away with anything. Surely some of the prophets, as they saw fellow prophets arrested, dragged off and killed, We're surely wondering, is God going to judge Ahab and Jezebel for killing these prophets? Surely some of the widows of the prophets who were killed were crying out like Psalm 13, 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? How long will you hide your face from us? How long will we take counsel in our soul and have sorrow in our heart all the day? How long shall our enemy be exalted over us? Surely they were saying, Hasn't God forgotten? 
And God has not forgotten. It may have taken 10 chapters, but God promised judgment and judgment is coming. The judge of all the earth will do right. But you may wonder, but should we rejoice to see this? I mean, aren't we supposed to pray that they should be forgiven? Well, with God, I believe we should have mixed emotions in regards to God's coming judgment. Yes, we should pray that God would lead people to repentance. We should cry out and ask that just like we don't deserve God's grace, just like we should get His justice, God, would you give them mercy and grace? Yet also, we should cry out as it says in Revelation 6, 9-10. through John saw the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You know that passage, Revelation 6, those are martyred Christians. They're no longer sinning and yet they still cry for God's justice. Thus, in the narrow angle lens, we should always cry, God, forgive them. We should have hearts that want to forgive. And yet from the wide angle lens, if they won't repent, we should delight when God brings justice to all who are sinning against Him. And so there's a mixture of tears and joy at God's judgment. If you've read a tale of two cities, you may remember a woman in there, Madame Defarge. She's the woman who bids her time for justice. And yet, once the French Revolution comes, she goes almost crazy seeking revenge for everything wrong that she had written or stitched about her family that was done to her. There's no end to her desire for so-called justice and there's no thought in her mind of any mercy or any forgiveness that could be given to any, no matter how far removed from prior crimes. You know, God's justice is not like that. God's justice is not riotous, mob-like slaughter. It's a perfect justice. It's holy, and it's mixed with His amazing love that offers to every single person. Turn so that you may live. I delight to show mercy. And so judgment is coming. For while Jesus came the first time to save, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We can be forgiven like Jehoram, Ahab, Jezebel, and Ahaziah could have been. We can confess our sins, humble ourselves before Him, and trust in Christ. You know, for them, they needed to look to the sacrificial lamb of God. And yet we know that's not just a lamb on an altar. That's the son of God who was the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And you may have noticed there's one problem because many people, sadly many people in churches are just like Joram. You know, King Joram was fascinated with God. Ah, oh, Elisha, tell me the... Or, Gehazi, tell me these stories of Elisha. Oh, isn't that wonderful? He wanted to hear of all that God had did. You may remember last week, when there was trouble, what did he do? He put sackcloth on under his other garments. You know, he liked what God said. He liked what God told him to do. 
to a point. And yet when the rubber met the road, he still ruled his own life. Even today, we can be fascinated with Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, I love reading the Bible. Oh, yeah, I pray. I believe in God. And yet many people are like Joram. They are fascinated with God, but they have not submitted themselves to God. They are still clinging to the bales in their life. They are willing to pray. They're willing to go to church, but they won't bow the knee and submit to Him as Savior and Lord. They know they need forgiveness, but they've never fully rested in the one who can give forgiveness. So do you know and love God, or do you just know about Him? The storm of God's judgment is gathering. God wants you to know His forgiveness. He wants you to be His adopted child. But if you won't come home through His Son, then He will know you as punished exile. May God have mercy on each of us. Let's pray. O oh Lord, You know each person in here. You know each person that maybe one day will listen to a recording of this. Lord, would You cause all of us to see the coming judgment and turn to the One who took that judgment for us. Lord, would You give us eyes of faith in Your Son? Would You give us knees that bow in submission and trust in You? Lord, may we not just be fascinated by You, May we put our faith in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.